This is exactly right. Hey, Parent Footprint listeners, to kick off 2023, we have some exciting news. Starting this month, our bonus episodes will now be available in the regular Parent Footprint podcast feed for free. And we will be re-releasing all the back catalog of bonus episodes as well. So that means you can have access to all of our Sitting Down with Dr. Dan bonus episodes featuring our listener questions and no longer need a paid subscription. And best of all, you don't have to do anything. Our bonus episodes will be in your regular Parent Footprint podcast show feed, starting with a new bonus episode on Tuesday, January 31st. I love answering your questions, so please keep them coming. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Parenthood 365 with our guest, Deborah Farmer Chris. Deborah is an educational journalist, parent educator, and the author of the All the Time Picture Book series. Her bylines include PBS Kids, NPR's Mindshift, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe Magazine, and Oprah Daily. Deborah's work is grounded in the two-plus decades she spent as a K-12 teacher and administrator. She has a BA from Boston University in English, a BS from Boston University in Elementary Education, and a Master's of Education from Rutgers for Counseling Psychology. Since 1998, she's also served as an associate scholar at the Boston University Center for Character and Social Responsibility, offering professional development to educators nationwide. She is the co-author of the book, Building Character in Schools, a resource guide, and her all-the-time picture book series has been featured on Oprah Daily, Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and much, much more. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with your road to becoming a teacher. Was that something that you always, was there a calling for you? Or is it something that was a windy road and you ended up in this field? There was a calling and it happened ridiculously early. I was the editor of the newspaper in my high school, uh, which I guess it foreshadows my career in writing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I loved writing and was convinced I was going to go become a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist. And as an internship, really just to pad my resume for college, I went back to my fourth grade classroom to teach writing to uh, a group of fourth graders for a semester. And I found myself more intellectually stimulated doing that than I was in most of my AP classes. Wow. And I uh, switched my college um, applications from journalism to education and English. And uh, that it was just, I have never found any field as stimulating and challenging and as, as 
teaching kids and now as a parent raising kids. Mm -hmm. I just find this to be an endless source of humility and passion and possibility. So um, it it hasn't grown old. So it was just, it was obvious. I mean, it wasn't even once, once you found it and of course dabbled in these other areas, it was just a no brainer. Like it's something you didn't question. You just put your head down and went. Yeah, it was really almost a, like a buzz, a hum moment, right? Almost mm-hmm. like you, you hear about like the hero's journey, the call. I I left and I just knew that I wanted mm-hmm. to teach. And I went and started, you know, at Boston University, they get you involved in classrooms right away. Um, and so every classroom I was in, I was in a fourth grade, then a sixth grade. I've taught middle school, I've taught high school. I, you know, I've been in preschools every day this week until today and last week reading my books. I love it all. And mm. it's just been um, it's, it's, it's never, never stopped being truly fulfilling. And now I wear much more of kind of the parent educator hat, but it's still that sense mm-hmm. of another angle of teaching kids, just teaching it through teaching parents. When did the transition happen? Or I, I'll, how old were your kids <laughs> when you started to take your educator cap and be, start to become more of a parent educator? You know, I think it happened before I had kids simply because it was my motivation for getting a degree in counseling psych. Um, I had thought I'd get a degree in school administration because I was an administrator. But I realized that I knew a lot about the administrative end, but I had parents coming in in distress, right? And I wanted to know more about how to help parents in distress reach their kids. And so, you know, I I wanted that angle. And once my kids were born um, and I I moved toward part-time teaching for a while, um, I thought, you know, what's next? Like, what's the next evolution? And I ended up writing a piece for NPR's MindShift on um, teaching empathy to boys and then another one about helping toddlers develop an emotional vocabulary, which is still one of my major foci. Mm -hmm. My books are all about that. Um, and both of them very unexpectedly went viral. And so at that point, PBS Kids called and they were starting a new parenting blog and it's, you know, kind of a new career trajectory was born. Wow. So it, it, it was a natural, it was a natural shift. And then it chose you, you put some stuff out there and then, uh, it came calling. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like in, in, in a career counseling, they call that like planned happenstance, right? It's, it happens, but mm-hmm. also you throw enough things out there and you see what sticks and you follow the path. Totally. I know that, um, in my profession, what I thought about parents and parenting, uh, definitely changed once I had my own children. And I'm wondering, as someone who started with this parent education and these pieces and your um, emotional literacy um, work that we'll talk about, did you have a before and after? You know, sort of, here's how I thought it would be, and here's, oh, wow, how it is. You know, any shifts? I think it's an inevitable shift because... You know, while teaching is a very consuming job, parenting is a 24-7 job, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I call it Parented 365. It is, it, I think what catches you by surprise as a parent is um, the emotional intensity, mm-hmm. um, the intensity of the love, the intensity of the worry. And I've always been a very empathetic teacher. And so I think I'd had previews of that as I'd worried over kids and trouble shoot. But when it's your own child who is in deep distress over something, I think it gives you that 
extra layer of empathy for other parents where you realize that they are really walking around with their heart outside their body when they have kids. And that, you know, you feel like you're giving constructive feedback, let's say, as, as a teacher, but they're bringing so much of their own emotional journey to that conversation. Um, and you have to meet the emotional needs and validate them before the parents can hear you for, for the next piece, because it's really vulnerable being a parent and you want to pretend like you have it all together because you're the adult. Uh, but the truth is it exposes vulnerabilities in our skill sets, but also vulnerabilities in, in our, just our own upbringing, right? Things that we Mm -hmm. thought we'd gotten through, um, baggage we thought we'd worked through, um, relationships with our parents we thought we'd healed. And then suddenly our kid says something triggering and we realize, oh, that wound wasn't quite as scabbed over as I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And there are those wounds that we are aware of. And then there's a lot of them that we don't even know really happened. You know, I mean, not in, in, in just a more of a, it's a it's a it's a pressure point or like you're saying it's a vulnerable point and all of a sudden we're reacting and we're being triggered and it can take us by surprise and our emotions can overwhelm us and how do we monitor what do we do how do we regulate so we pivot for our kids right this increase our own self-awareness and pivot when we are going to inevitably be triggered I think that is is really such the core of my own journey and my work with parents because we talk about emotional regulation in kids, but you know the fact is, is we're their models, and so there's that whole piece about co-regulation of emotion mm-hmm. that's that basically you just that boils down to you know if I'm losing control, my child has no backstop um, for their emotional regulation, and so. Obviously, we are humans and we're going to lose it sometimes. But I think having kids really kind of exposes some of the fault lines um, at times. And here are two pieces of things that I found really helpful in in my own life with this. Um, One is to be able to do anything we can do to zoom out of the situation. And uh, I actually recently had a talk with Dr. Uh, Ethan Cross, who wrote a a wonderful book called Chatter. Mm-hmm. about our, our voices. And his research is something I've been doing intuitively for a long time, which says that sometimes when we talk about ourselves in the third person, it actually helps us zoom out enough to assess the situation. Hmm. And that might look like saying, um, you know, Deborah, I know that you are feeling really upset right now, but your son is also you know, having a tough day. And why don't you go take a breather before you, you come back to this? Um, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Brackett, who wrote mm-hmm. um, Permission to Feel, he actually told me something very similar that when he's feeling activated, he will say, he'll ask himself, what would the director of emotional intelligence at Yale University <laughs> be doing in this situation? Yes. Because it, it just provides a little bit of distance. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think anything you can do, and that distance might be a walk around the block. That distance mm-hmm. may be taking time and sitting in the bathroom. That distance you know, maybe a primal scream in your car as you drive for a moment and come back to it. But that space between our reaction, which is absolutely fine. I think we can sometimes beat ourselves up for getting upset, but our reactions are normal and our kids' reactions are normal, right? You never want to punish kids for being mad. That's Mm -hmm. a normal human emotion. It's the space between our 
reaction and then our response to our kids. Like that's the space totally. of choice. Totally. And so anything you can do to like elongate, like, like, like live in that pause to be, I walked in, there are Legos all over the floor. Mm-hmm. I'm late for a meeting. I know my reaction. I sense it. I'm going to name it. I'm going to pause and think about what's my response going to be. Right. And if that response, and you have to practice it, right? I mean, this is such a practice piece to say, wow, right now I'm running late and I see the mess right here. And I'm noticing that I'm feeling upset. And then often when I simply say that, when I just acknowledge the situation, my kids will step in to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not condemning them. I'm noticing a situation. I'm sharing that I'm having a reaction to it without being activated yes. and their ability to then step in because it gives them some agency then to solve right. it versus just being right. angry at mom for being angry at me. Right. And without shame, right? Like they're not being <laughs> shamed. You're, no. So there's several things there that um, have given me thoughts that you said. So one about the space between, I always think about um, Stephen Covey's books and um, the, the, the most famous, of course, the seven habits of highly, um, affected people, there's the eighth habit. And of the eighth habit, um, the ne- that other, the next book, he talks about the difference between successful and unsuccessful people. And again, using those words very broadly, are the amount of space they have between a stimulus and a response, mm. right? Like just exactly mm-hmm. what you just said. If we can create space between something that happens and how we respond to it, we usually do way better in thinking it through, getting perspective as you're talking about. Um, So that is really important. The other thing that is so, it's so important. And I just think of in my own life and in the, the, the parenting literature in the past, how much we were giving kids timeouts for being dysregulated, for being angry for being upset go to your room i'm talking very generally go to your room take a time out come back when you can put yourself together or when you're done crying and as you point out the newer way of the past hopefully few decades of um, more positive parenting conscious parenting brain-based parenting co-regulation all of these great ideas and concepts are based on let's acknowledge those feelings. Let's try to understand those feelings. And with the work you do with emotional literacy, let's help people, these little people have words to describe their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The idea of an emotional vocabulary is really powerful. Actually, my second book is you have feelings all the time. And I go into preschools and little ones and I say, you know, here's happy, mad, sad, scared. You have them all the time. And what are some other feeling words And one, I'm really impressed with the level of emotional vocabulary, because I do not think 20 years ago, you could have had, you know, five-year-olds saying to me, aggravated, frustrated, you know, we have been equipping them. A lot of this comes out of research of people like Lisa Feldman Barrett out of Northeastern University. And her word for this is emotional granularity. It's this Mm -hmm. idea that the more we can put our feelings into very specific words that we can identify with specificity, that that correlates as you get older with reduced substance abuse, with reduced violence, with stronger and healthier relationships. Uh, And so this is the difference between I am irate and I am worried about the test result that's coming, or I am frustrated 
or I am sleep deprived, or I am, um, I'm irritated by. And when you can actually name it, right? Is it really that you're mad at your friend or do you feel jealous or do you feel hurt? Are you feeling lonely? And for a lot of our kids, they're going from zero to angry, but angry is actually not angry. Angry is worried. Angry is confused. Angry is overstimulated. Angry is I need a snack. Um, And, you know, I think sometimes we then punish the anger and we never get curious and we never help get underneath and see what's the actual word that belongs to this situation. Mm -hmm. I had a Mm -hmm. really powerful moment with this with one of my kids um, early on in the pandemic. He was five in kindergarten. Virtual kindergarten was really tough as it was for everybody. And uh, one day after, after Zoom lessons, he went outside, he found a caterpillar, he put it in a jar. The next morning, his older sister discovered the caterpillar was dead. I cleaned it out. I went to go teach a class, got him hooked up. And then the whole afternoon, he was just really, he was having a rough afternoon. You know, he was rough on his sister. He was rough on me. There was yelling. And I finally was activated. And I said, all right, I'm going to my room. You're going to yours. We'll talk in a few minutes. And I took some deep breaths and I went back in. He was underneath the big cover. And I said, you have a lot of mad inside you today. And this little voice comes out. I'm not mad. I'm sad. Mm. And I just paused. I had no idea. And I said, you're sad. And he said, yeah, there's something dead that's supposed to be alive. And he was talking about the caterpillar. And of course, at that moment, you know, I recognized that something big had happened in his, in his body, the sadness, right, over this creature that he was, you know, nurturing. And if I hadn't taken that opportunity, I think about kind of this crisis sometimes we have with, um, with boys as they get older of not being able to, to express sadness or some of these other emotions, that was an opportunity I almost missed, right? To acknowledge how sad it is when something we care about dies. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe it's small to me, it's a caterpillar, but it was obviously not small to him. So being able to dial down and say, it's not mad, it's sad, was just a real aha moment for him and for me. And uh, and it helped me recognize how empathetic this little five-year-old was in front of me. Um, Yes. So. And the assumptions we make, right? Uh, yeah. And the assumptions we make about our kids' behaviors um, when we aren't in touch with our own emotions and we react. I, years ago, um, on my internship for psychology, I was working in a very progressive county. And one of the training experiences I had is I was co-facilitating a domestic violence um, group. And I'm, I'm thinking back of your one of your original um, articles about um, em- empathy and emotions in boys. And I had my own. So in this in this county, when when the police were called out, someone had to be arrested regardless of what happened. It, they were really clamping down on domestic violence. And so I had my ideas about who would be in this group as a much younger person. And of course, those were all shattered because there were it was a men's group and it was men's from men from all walks of life, like all different types of men. The only thing they had in common was they were, they were men. Other than that, uh, oh, men and that they were arrested for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Seeing these grown men, some of them seeming very tough, many of them being very sensitive people, Hearing them say, no one ever taught me the difference between mad and sad. No one ever Mm. told me I can take a time out. I mean, these men were 
crying, talking about their own life experiences, their own traumas, their own lack of really, I would say, parenting and emotional um, resilience building. And, and, and even at those ages, grown men were getting these pieces of information in our curriculum and saying it changed their lives. So mm-hmm. thinking about the work that you're doing and how to instill this in our kids at a young age, it changes life trajectory. Not yes. to be too dramatic, but it, it does. No, I absolutely think it does. You know, and I think about young adolescents, right? I mean, it's one thing with our preschoolers, but then they start slamming doors and they start talking back and that that need to stay curious and loving is so vital and and hard to do and i was tell i was working with a group of 7th grade girls and uh, i was doing a workshop on emotional literacy and i had told a couple of stories including the one about the butterfly the caterpillar and one of the participants said something that i i share with every parent now because I really think everyone should put this on their home screen or mm-hmm. cross stitch it for their wall, which is, I really wish my parents would remember that when I get mad at them, it's almost always because I'm stressed about something else. Mm. And I was like, that, wow. that's what the parent of every teenager needs. That fits, that, that resonates. It yes. Fits, yeah. Right. You know, they slammed the door, they give us a look, but maybe at school, right? Maybe a friend dump them. Maybe they were embarrassed in front of a class. Maybe, you know, they missed a, some, a special, a goal at, you know, at the game that they're feeling, whatever it is, they take it out on us. We see it as mad. We, you know, reprimand them. And Mm -hmm. underneath are, are these worries, these fears, these stressors that come out and we're the shelter, right? We're, we're the anchor, we're the shelter. They're going to push, they're going to pull, but ultimately they are looking for that safe, loving person, even when sometimes they're not reciprocating mm-hmm. outwardly. Yes. The love. So important. Parents of teenagers. I, uh, personally and professionally, I totally agree that we have to take a step back when our teens are coming at us because very often it is not about us. And, uh, but still it's not that doesn't just make it easy. It just gives us this perspective to try to take this, get the space that we were talking about, right? Right, and it doesn't mean we need to allow them to abuse us, you know, right. verbally. We can set limits and say, "I can see you're upset." We don't use that language here as a family, but it's that perspective that allows us to say, "Okay, there's yes. something going on here that 99% it has nothing to do with you." Yeah. And I say that as someone who's taught a lot of middle school and teenagers they're so wrapped up in their social and if they're come home and they're mad guarantee it's Mm -hmm. very, very unlikely that has anything to do with you. You just provided an easy excuse for Mm -hmm. them to have a release valve. Yes. So I read, well, many things you wrote, but one of the things I read about the beginning of the all the time series um, was this wonderful moment with you and one of your kids about loving them all the time and tell, tell everyone, tell everyone that the story before the story. So the book is called, I love you all the time. And the story really begins in the year 2013 when my daughter was two and she was just having a meltdown. And when I tell the story to young kids, I say, you know how 
when you're really mad when you're two, your whole body's mad, right? Your arms are mad, your legs are mad, you're screaming. She was having a massive meltdown. I couldn't calm her down. I was at my wit's end. I was exhausted. And I finally scooped her up and I put her on my lap. And I said, I really love you when you're mad. And she gave me this look like, what did you just say? But she stopped crying. And so I continued and I said, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're scared. I love you when you're mad because I love you all the time. And that became a mantra that I said to my kids every night before bed for a long, long time. And now, you know, it's kind of almost a family joke because it's like, you know, I have it on the walls. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll do something, I'll take a deep breath and say, all right, still love you all the time, right? And what was amazing about this mantra for me is it resonated so deeply with one of my fundamental human person wounds, which was the sense that I have to be an overachiever to be lovable. Mm -hmm. I have to say yes to everything somebody asks me to do to be loved. I have to over-excel at work. I have to make Christmas extra magical, right? There's this kind of deep people-pleasing part of me Mm -hmm. that I think deeply believed that if I was having a really bad day, that there was a part of me that wasn't lovable. And yet here I looked at my children and of course I love them all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think that so much of parenting is being making the implicit, like the sense that we have inside explicit. Mm -hmm. So we may know we love our kids all the time, but if when they do something wrong, we get angry and we're not explicit about that love, I think it can be easy to, create a false distinction that I'm lovable when I behave and I'm not lovable when I don't. And I think that message that you are loved and lovable all the time is not only the foundation of my parenting, it's the foundation of my teaching too, because Mm -hmm. I think that's really important with adolescence. Um, But it's also the foundation of my midlife (laughs) attempting to to really figure out like this, I believe in the inherent worth of everybody. Do I believe it in myself? And so mm. that, that was a truly yeah. profound parenting moment. And which is why I ended up turning it into a book. So it makes me think of the question that people ask, well, how do I, how do I show that I love my child, but I don't love their behavior, right? Like, isn't this sort of like, where, where's the fine line of, of guiding? Because I think the misconception with a lot of the positive parenting uh, movement is people think like, oh no, there's no rules. There's no boundaries. It's all about just um, acknowledging and to an extreme indulging your child's big feelings. And that's not what we're talking about. No, it's not. And honestly, if all we're doing is indulging big feelings, that is scary for kids. Mm -hmm. Because if there are no boundaries on what they can do, right? If we just say, I see you're frustrated. I see you're kicking the dog. I see you're pulling things off the Christmas tree. There's nobody there providing those boundaries. And that's not helpful to young kids or older kids. But what we are doing is we're looking at what we actually mean by discipline, right? The root of discipline is is to teach. And so for me, it's those conversations. And I, I, my favorite way of thinking about discipline is inductive discipline, which is I just want to connect the dots 
between what they do and how other people are feeling or the effect it has Mm -hmm. on the family or on their friends. And often that's enough, right? Helping connect the dots to say, you know, when you knock down your, you know, sister's tower that she had built, she was really upset. She'd spent a long time Mm -hmm. on that, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you're I you are really nice. You're a kind brother. Like, I know that's not who you are. So what do we do now? How do we fix it? Mm-hmm. And that allows moving from not just, I need you to feel deeply everything you did wrong. It's like, let's acknowledge that this had an effect, which is awesome because you have an effect on the world. And now let's get to how do we, how do we fix this? And how can I help you fix this? Totally. I uh, read your piece um, for PBS Kids, uh, where you had recently interviewed Melinda Moyer, who um, journalist who wrote the great the great title "How to Raise uh, Kids Who Aren't A Holes: Science Based Strategies for Better Parenting." I mean, I love yes. that title. And in that interview, you highlight something that she said, which completely is in line with what you said, which is. We need to help kids understand that there is a direct connection between what we do and what other people feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the basis of empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it, this is the basis of kindness. It's the sense of, and sometimes, you know, uh, like it was. It, 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 I think we have to assume often the best of our kids. You know, because the other morning. Um, my son asked me a question about the World Cup, and I told him, we looked it up, I told him the answer, and he said, oh, I'm going to tell my friend he was wrong about this fact. And I know this friend of his is actually quite a sensitive kid, and I said, so how are you going to share this information? Mm. Because do you want your friend to be upset, or do you want to share it in a way that you can both be excited about World Cup? And it caught, obviously his first impulse was just to share it. But he paused and he thought about it because he knows this is a really sensitive friend. And he said, oh, I think I could say, you know, I looked that up and this is what I found. And he he role played it for a moment before school. And I thought, "Okay, you know, these are those connections we're making between our choices and how other people feel. And that's part of how you always communicate the sense of love is. I love you enough to try to help you figure it out, right? I'm here helping guide you as part of my responsibility. And this is one thing actually I learned as a teacher before I had kids is that if I had a kid sent to my office or I had to take in the hallway um, and once they calmed down, if I asked them, did it feel good to lose control? They'd always say no. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel good for kids to, to lose control or to yell or to do things that hurt our feelings. So we don't need to pile on, mm-hmm. but part of what we can do is to say, wow, ouch. You know, when you said that, I did feel this. I don't think you meant that. Like, what do we do now? You know, and it just reaffirms the love. It also gives them space to correct the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we talk a lot about thriving we wanting our kids to thrive, which I do think is better than we want our, like the older term was, I want my child to be successful. I mean, it's still used, but that's just a really big term. And it yeah. that, that, that can go sideways pretty easy. So now we talk more about hopefully health, wellness, mm-hmm. our kids becoming who they are um, and thriving. So yeah. how would you, how do you think about that concept of helping our kids to thrive? 
I love the word thrive. I mean, it goes back to the kind of the ancient Greek idea of eudaimonia, right? This idea of flourishing, which mm-hmm. is which is a better word even than happy, right? Yes. Because when you ask parents what do you want, it's very easy to say, "I want my kids to be happy." But the truth is, happy yeah. is an emotion, and so we're not going to feel it all the time. And some of our most powerful memories, like that one with my daughter or that one with my son, happen when times are not easy. I was not particularly happy with these meltdowns, but they were profoundly meaningful. And they got me to a place where I could help my kids thrive more. And so I think about thriving, part of is having the vision of what are some of the basic qualities and habits that I hope for myself and my kids. And so I think about, it's not about personality, right? I think about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. They have The seven dwarves have very different temperaments and personalities. You have your introverts and your extroverts, but they're all really kind and they're all hardworking. And so I think about with my kids, like, sure, I I hope they do well in school, but there may be years they do and don't because of things going on in their life. But I hope that they're kind and I I want them to be responsible and to gain the skills for, for independence. And I want them to be able to be brave, right? To be able to face a fear and and walk forward if it's something that matters to them. So I often think more about these character words, you know, like bravery mm-hmm. and perseverance and kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, when you look back on a on a life, you want to be able to say, you know, that was a good life. And it's not a good life because of of money or this or that. It was because of relationships. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. You think about who do you want as a close friend? You want somebody who is kind, who's compassionate, mm-hmm. who's loyal. And you know, to be able to help our kids develop those skills so that right. they can be a good friend to themselves and to others, to be strong members of community, that's thriving. Because, yeah. you know, there's gonna be ups and there's gonna be the unexpected. I think, you know, with everything in the world, if if COVID's taught us anything, is how little control we have. Yeah. I mean, control is really an illusion, mm-hmm. um, but we can, there are things within our realm of control. And part of that is, all right, I, I can't do everything, but I can still be kind to a neighbor. And that yeah. can make the day mm-hmm. a little bit better. Yeah. And back to empathy, that's about right back to empathy and connection. Yeah. Um, you brought up a good point because I, I, I could have said the, it, the common thing parents have said for years is I want my child to be happy and successful or successful and happy. And it's so easy to go there, right? It's so, of course we want our kids to be happy. We don't want them to be upset. And as you point out, it is an emotion and emotions are fleeting. So if we are want, if we're giving our kids the message that they need to be happy to be okay, or, or in other related cases, they need to be happy so we can be okay. (laughs) right? This kind of meta <laughs> message. Um, it's a, it's a trap. And, and, and for everyone who's thinking, oh gosh, are you talking about me? Like this is all of us. All of us want our kids to quote, be happy. And all of us, you know, what they, that's that saying, um, you're only as happy as your most miserable child or something like that. This is where we get so, first of all, we're so connected to them at so many levels. And it's so important that we differentiate from them and focus on ourselves and our mm-hmm. own well-being so we can be okay even when they're not okay. Oh, 100%. 
I, I like the phrase that Susan David uses to talk about emotion. She's the author of Emotional Agility. And she talks about how our emotions are data. They're not directions. So, you know, that's helpful with really young ones to say, you can be mad, but that doesn't mean you need to hit your sister, right? It doesn't tell you what to do. But our darker emotions, our less comfortable emotions, which are all valid, they're giving us data. And so, you know, when you talk to kids in a real way about emotions, you know, anger serves a purpose. So if you're feeling angry, and it really is anger, right? It's not just being hungry. What is that telling you, right? Did something you care about, like, let's say that um, somebody hurt your feelings and you're angry, that is telling you something about maybe that you care about something. Or let's say that you tried out for the play and you didn't get the part and you're you're upset. That tells you that this matters to you. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a beautiful thing. You know, if we went through life and we never felt disappointment, on the flip side, we wouldn't care about anything. We wouldn't right. value anything. We wouldn't be motivated. And sometimes it is actually the disappointments that remind us um, of what we care about. Yes. And that is, that's important for kids to say, wow, you're really upset about this. You must really care about this relationship, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some friendships break apart and they're like, whatever. They didn't really care about so much anyway. And other ones feel deeply. The friendship may not rebound, but it's a reminder that it mattered. And yes. that's important. I like the idea of emotions as data, it's as information, yeah. right? And, and it fits with what you talked about earlier in terms of, I think, taking a step back instead of being sucked into these our kids' emotions and taking them personally, which mm-hmm. so often, as you point out, they are not. Um, okay, what, what, is this, what is this telling them and what is this telling me, right? Mm-hmm. And how can I guide them into understanding their emotions and what they mean so they can have increased awareness about themselves. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, I've talked to teenagers, they were really nervous before going into a test. And I'd say, but, you know, we can work on some things to help you calm down the deep breathing. But it's kind of cool that you care about your schoolwork, right? Mm-hmm. Like own that. Because there are plenty of people go in and say, oh, I don't care. It's awesome that you care. You know, so it's not awesome. You're having test anxiety. We can work on that. But it's it's telling you that you you care about your achievement in this class. And that's something we're celebrating. So let's hold on to that and work on practical strategies. Right. And that's that's great because then it doesn't demonize stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, Lisa Damore has gone a long way to help us understand um, that, you know, we have this epidemic of kids being, as she says, stressed about being stressed and anxious mm. about being anxious. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if they're not anxious, they'll be like, well, should I be? You know, right. I, I'm not feeling stressed enough. I'm stressed about not feeling stressed enough. And it, it, it kind of, um, it helps us, it, it, you know, stress at some level is just a natural human phenomenon to get us ready to act. And so we want to feel a bit of stress before a big game or before we get on stage. It, it, it's when it hijacks us so that we can't do the things we care about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when it becomes a problem. But, you know, if we pathologize stress and think that, oh, no, my child should never feel stressed. One, it's impossible because they will. Right. But then, then they'll feel bad about feeling stressed. Of like, yes. oh, no, I'm feeling this. This is a bad thing versus, no, this is a totally, totally normal biological system that's getting you ready to act because you care. 
Yes. I want to talk about another concept that you've been writing and speaking about, and that is awe. Mm. Tell us about awe. This is my favorite topic of the week, month, and year. Um, I had a chance to really do a deep dive about a year ago. I was finishing up my book, You Wonder All the Time, and I was working on the back pages for parents. All my books have back pages. And I had a chance to interview Dr. Dr. Keltner at the Greater Good Science Center, who has really done the preeminent research on this emotion. And the feeling of awe, which is your sense of goosebumps, it's when you experience something outside of your understanding. You, you see something beautiful, and it's this feeling of wonder. It connects you with the beauties and mysteries of this world. Turns out this is a protective and a productive emotion. It is emotionally protective. Um, being out in nature, ex feeling, experiencing awe um, it, in clinical studies, um, it, it is... It helps reduce symptoms of PTSD. Um, it helps with all kinds of, of mental health. Um, and it's also productive in the sense that it spurs our curiosity, our internal motivation, because you see something, you feel the sense of awe or wonder, and you want to know more. And so I did this deep dive. Um, I read an article for the Washington Post. And quite personally, this changed my relationship with New England winters. I live in mm. New England. <laughs> I've never been a fan of New England winters. But I started taking awe walks, which is one of the interventions that they have studied many, many times. And they have senior citizens go on a walk where it's an outward facing walk versus inward. So no podcast in my ears, mm -hmm. no texting. And you purposefully are looking for something that provokes awe, right? So you're looking for beauty. And I started doing these on these cold winter days, going on awe walks. And then I started investigating the birds in the neighborhood with my son. And we downloaded an app called Merlin, and we began to identify bird calls via my phone. And now, if I walk out my door, I know more about my neighborhood than I ever have in all my years living here. I know what birds come around. I know their sounds. I know what other animals are here. I know which trees bloom when because I started paying attention. Mm. And, you know, what they discovered in the research is that, that the senior citizens who took these all walks had significantly higher sense of life satisfaction than the control group. And I just think that's a really powerful hidden thing within our reach is to be looking for sources of awe for ourselves to fill mm -hmm. us up and for our children, because there's thriving right there that doesn't cost any money, right? It's yes. the nature, it's the music, it's art, it's what's called collective effervescence, which means being part of a group doing something together, whether you're all cheering for the World Cup or in a choir together. Mm. Um, these are things that give us that goosebump feeling, that electricity that we can't quite put into words. But yeah. that's awe. And that's an emotion. I will, t you know, there's happy. I love happy, but awe, awe. That's, I want to be an awe seeker. Yes. I love that. It, it makes me think of uh, the Buddhist idea of child mind. Like the mm. idea of, you know, as we get older, it's like we have these templates in our head and we, our brains predict what's going to happen and how our day is going to be. And we stop paying attention. And it seems like you just are talking about the antidote to that, which yeah. is to search for what is out there 
And I, I'm also wondering from the, it seems like when, when we think of resilience and um, managing mental health challenges um, of depression and anxiety, which often has us focused inward on ourselves mm-hmm. in ways that are not comfortable. I can see how awe, this, this idea of going out and looking out at the wonder is is a protective factor to some of the internal process, which could be distressing that many of us get caught in. Yeah. And I think this, you know, there's a correlation between awe and feeling humility. And I think humility gets a bad rap, but it mm. can, it's, it's, can be a very healthy feeling. Mm-hmm. It's that sense that, you know, you go outside and you look and you see the shooting stars or you see something that beautiful and everything else feels a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense that, Maybe the argument that you had with your kid over their grades is a little bit small in the scheme of things, right? You, it, it, it reorganizes, it almost reorients priorities um, when you are able to tap into awe, which again, just, it, it almost makes you feel a part of something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think the humility of being able to see beauty, to hear beauty, to seek it out and that is really good for our teenagers. I mean, yes. So yes, tell us that. and how in this modern world, yeah. uh, this digital age, um, this, I will call overstressed world that yeah. our children and t- especially the teens who are more connected in these ways are experiencing. Yeah. How do we help them cultivate awe? I think one, we can talk about it. I gave actually a presentation to a school last year about this and then the, the student government decided to make awe their theme for the year. They thought it was mm. such a cool idea. That is cool. Um, yeah. And so I, I think we can actually point to it and and say that, you know, to help provide some of these in-person opportunities. Um, and as, as Dr. Keltner says, you know, awe isn't something necessarily scheduled, but it's it's wandering without purpose. And I think especially our teenagers feel like everything has to have a purpose. It has to go on the resume, right? It can't just be an activity. It has to be resume building for college, mm-hmm. um, at least for, for some of our, our teens in these kind of high pressure environments. And this is where the walk, they're like choosing a nature reserve you've never been to before, mm-hmm. walking around, driving to a new city you haven't seen and walking around. Sometimes it's getting out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, after going through this research, I took my kids to the art gallery, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I, I, we turned loose and I said, what's one piece in this gallery that if you had to bring it home, you would like, what, what do you just find beautiful for whatever reason? And they scurried around looking for that, Mm. you know, because it's not, what's the finest piece of art it's what speaks to you. And that's a process of self-discovery that actually teenagers are very much involved in. What's the music that speaks to you? What's the activity? Um, And this is where as parents and as mentors, you know, our teens really need, they need hobbies. They need to be exploring things that just bring them joy. And so that's that sense of collective effervescence that might be on a soccer team. It might be on, I know, a bird watching club. It might be something that, you know, an anime club, something that we wouldn't necessarily think of, right? Like they're mm-hmm. so into D&D, but for some kids, D&D is awe-inspiring. They're yes. imagining worlds. Yes. And so sometimes our definition of awe might need to take a back seat, but think about the basic sources, which are art, music, nature, 
exploring big ideas. And actually my favorite one, um, the, the thing that people speak to most is uh, a feeling awe is actually noticing the goodness in others. That Ooh, is like an like instant that. awe provoker. And I think wow. we can help kids with that too, because yes. you know, this world, they're hearing so many negative news stories. And so mm-hmm. just to point out when there's a good one or when you have something, you know, somebody's kind to you so that we're, we're purposefully balancing out their fears about climate change and COVID and school shootings and all this stuff on their shoulders while they're trying to get into college right? with a reminder about humans being good to other humans. Mm. I like that. I mean, that, that wraps that puts so much together in how to build empathy through awe by connecting it to what is something good about that person? Right. Like, what do you notice about that person? And. Um, yeah, I'm in awe. I, I'm just I'm uh, I'm looking out the window. I'm looking at uh, these trees and a mountain I'm looking at. And I'm like, you know, what? I'm taking an awe walk today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Deborah, the time flies. <laughs> and uh, so we are at the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. Well, I would have gone back to the one about scooping my daughter up and saying, you know, I love you all the time, but I'll go even a little bit before that to when I brought my my second child home and I had a, had an unexpected C-section. So I was in the hospital longer than I anticipated. And when I came home, uh, my oldest wanted nothing to do with me. Um, and, you know, there were tantrums. She wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't come near me. I was a mess. She was a mess. And finally, after a couple of days, she sat on, she'd kind of worn herself out from mm-hmm. crying and she was in a stupor. And, um, I said, you know, I know you're, you mad at mommy for being away and she wouldn't respond. And I said, are you feeling sad? And she didn't respond. Actually, my husband said, are you scared? And the moment he said that she looked up and she came over and she crawled into my lap for the first time in three days. Mm -hmm. And it was such an, I think that is my first genesis of recognizing just the power of naming our feelings with mm-hmm. kids that finding the right word was in itself healing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that so much of my journey with myself and my kids is to be able to just pause and to be able to name, to be able to say, how am I showing up today? Why am I feeling this? What do I want? That life can get so busy with to-do lists but being able to pause in that moment and just ask the right question, find the right word, that in itself was a healing moment. And, um, you know, I need to go back to the reminder a lot, just, just yeah. pause and ask myself, is it, mm-hmm. is it angry? Is it sad? Mm-hmm. Am I scared? And, and once I have that data, what do I do? Yes. Now? And the ability to name and then to grow up and to name our own emotions is the cornerstone of emotional literacy as you write about and of emotional resilience. 
Yes. And empathy. Yes. Yeah. Which are all good things that help our kids thrive. Yes. And us. Deborah, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Tell everyone where they can find your beautiful books and all of the other projects you are involved in. If you go to parenthood365.com, you will find links to social media, to the books. Um, They're available on Amazon or through your local indie. But parenthood365.com will take you to all the other places to find me. Congratulations for all of the places that you are connected to and um, sharing all of this such important information. I know um, awe is thinking about awe for me as an emotion um, and as something to seek has really expanded the way I've seen things um, and and in my work. And uh, so thank you for for offering that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for listening, everyone. I know you know many people who will benefit from hearing the information from Deborah on this show. Please share it with them. Thank you for being a part of our community. We so appreciate your five-star reviews. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.